Luke 15. So uh, Luke 15 is a series of three parables that are all moving in the same direction. They're all these. Uh, they're actually these iconic parables. If you've been a Christian for a, a, a while, you've most likely heard each of these parables and most likely heard many messages on them. So let me set this up and then we'll dive in. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So that's the setup. So you've got Jesus, got thousands of people following him as he's moving towards Jerusalem, and the crowd is a mix. Some people are devout, they're serious about him, some are interested, some are hostile, uh, some are skeptical. You've got this eclectic group of people who are following Jesus, and among them are some religious leaders, some Pharisees, and they're upset with some of the practices that Jesus is engaging in. They're grumbling among themselves in this crowd, and Jesus hears about it. And what they're upset about is Jesus accepts, he welcomes tax collectors and sinners to eat with him, which means he's offering them relationship. That's what it meant to share a meal with somebody. He's not just preaching to them. He's not just teaching them. He's not just telling them, you've got to change the way you're living. He's actually inviting them into relationship. And it's upsetting to them. Now, for us, the categories tax collector and sinner don't mean much. So maybe you can think of social outcast and religious outcast. And you can decide who you would put in those categories. So a tax collector was a Jewish citizen who uh, took money from fellow Jews and gave that money to the Roman government. So if China invaded the United States and took over and there were other American citizens who were exacting taxes from us and then giving that money to the Chinese government, that's how those tax collectors were viewed. They were seen as traitors. They were incredibly greedy. They were seen as corrupt and untrustworthy. They were these social outcasts. Then you also had religious Outcast. That was the sinners. So those are people who are notorious for the way they're living. It's, it's prostitutes. It's uh, people of low character. And everybody knows they don't have any character. Everybody knows they don't have any morals. Everybody knows they don't have any standards. They're, they're public in their sinfulness. And Jesus is welcoming these people into relationship with him. And the religious leaders are going, what, not, what are you doing? These aren't the kinds of people that we associate with. If you are a holy man... Like you say you are, if you're an agent of the kingdom of God, like you say you are, then these are not the kinds of people who you should be associating with. At a minimum, you should tell them they've got to clean up before they can come in. And you're not even saying that. You're just welcoming them in as they are. And they were upset about that. And so Jesus replies by giving three parables. And these three parables are all a response to the Pharisees murmuring. Here's a little, just to help you orient you with the structure Each of the parables has these three characters. It's got God and it's kind of this going back and forth between the father and the son, the shepherd, the woman and the father. They're sinners. They're the the outcasts. They're the um, irreligious people far from God, however you want to define that. Lost sheep, lost coin and the younger son. And you have the Pharisees or the religious or the upstanding or the moral or those who think they're close to God. That's the 99 sheep, the nine coins, and the older son. So you'll see all three of these characters in each parable, and each parable tells the same story. Little different shades of meaning, but they're all uh, communicating the same point. So let's look at these first two together. Then Jesus told them, that's the religious leaders, this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and he goes home. 
Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do, don't need, who do not need to repent. Or suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there's rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So Jesus is, paying, remember, he's, he's speaking to the Pharisees, but they're part of this larger crowd. This larger crowd has men and women in it. What Jesus is doing is defending his practice of having dinner, having meals with tax collectors and sinners, with social and religious outcasts. And he does so by saying, here's something you guys can relate to, and here's something you ladies can relate to. Guys, you know how it would be if you had a hundred sheep and you lost one. You would leave the ninety-nine with a friend and you would go searching for that one lost sheep because it's a big deal. It may not even be yours. It may be your neighbors. It may be one of your relatives. And so you're going to go and find that sheep. And when you find it, you're going to bring him home and then you're going to celebrate because this sheep has value, has worth, is precious to you. And you found it. And women, y'all get it. Your husband gives you money to take care of the household expenses and you lose some of it. That's a big deal. You lost a whole day's pay. That's how much one of those coins was worth. You had it wrapped up in this little rag, the knot uh, comes loose and a coin drops on the floor. And the floors are dusty and they've got rocks on them, they're cracks, easy for a coin to get lost in there, not a lot of light in the house. So you're going to light a lamp, you're going to turn your house upside down because it's a big deal to lose the money. And when you find it, you're going to celebrate, particularly if you find it before your husband comes home. It's going to be good. You never have to tell him. So, men, you get it. Something precious to you is lost, you go find it. Women, you get it. Something valuable to you is lost, you go find it. And when you find those things, you celebrate. Jesus is saying, that's why I do what I do. The Father is the same way. He goes after, he searches for people who are far from him. And when he finds them and brings them home, he rejoices and he celebrates. What I'm doing, Jesus is saying, is an extension Of the Father's heart. It's an expression of the heart of God to go after people who are far away. These social outcasts, these religious outcasts, these people who y'all would say are far away from him. Those are the very ones that God is pursuing and he's pursuing them through me. And so that's his defense of his ministry. What he's doing, you can notice we're going to get into this last parable. He begins to tighten the circle. They go from one out of a hundred So one out of ten. Now we're going to look at a parable of two sons and it's one out of two. What he's doing is he's drawing the circle tighter and tighter so his audience can't wriggle out of it. And it's lost in the wild wilderness to lost in a house to lost in a heart. He's making the circles tighter and tighter so people can't uh, opt out, so they can't wriggle out, so they have to wrestle with what's he saying to me about this. So there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of the country who sent him to his field to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. 
I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on and put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. I want to give you some context. It's easy for us to miss a lot of the uh, nuance in that story. And a lot of this comes from this book. It's called The Cross and the Prodigal, Luke 15, Through the Eyes of a Middle Eastern Peasant. It's really good. It's $14 on Amazon. I would encourage you to pick it up, or you can listen to me and save $14. So either one of those, but it's good. And a lot of the observations I'm making come out of this book. It was a guy who was a American scholar, and he lived in the Middle East for 40 years, and he, he asked that he would go to these remote villages where there hadn't been a lot of what we would call progress over the centuries, and he said, what do, what do you hear when you hear these stories? Like, tell me, what's, what, tell me, give me the grid that you interpret these stories through, and, and we miss a lot of it just because we're not Palestinian peasants who lived 2,000 years ago. So you have a, a, a rich man, and he's got two sons, and the younger son says, I want my Stuff. That's what he says to his father, which is equivalent of saying, I wish you were dead. It would be like you going to one of your parents and saying, hey, I'm, I would like you to give me my inheritance now. That's what he's saying to him. I want my stuff now. I really don't care about you. I don't care about a relationship with you. I just want what's mine. And what the father does is he, then, he says, okay. And he divides the inheritance. The older son would get two-thirds, and the younger would get one-third. So at that point, the older son has possession of whatever's remaining of the estate, but the father still has use of it. The younger son, what he does is he takes his, and he he liquidates it. He cashes everything in. Uh, Wealth would have been property, it would have been livestock, and it would have been stuff. Buildings, jewelry, that kind of stuff. And what the younger son does is he takes all of that, It's like a fire sale. He cashes everything out so he can leave with a bag full of money. Again, what he's communicating to his father is, I don't want anything to do with you. I don't want a relationship with you. All I want is stuff. The word Jesus used is actually not inheritance. He doesn't say, give me my inheritance, because inheritance implies responsibility. The word he says is, "Give give me the materials. Give me the substance. Give me the stuff. An inheritance said, well, I'm going to try to build up my father's house. Inheritance says, I have a responsibility to uphold my family name within this village and within this community. And the son wasn't interested in any of that. He was burning his bridges. I just want what's mine. I want what you owe me. And then I'm going to go do my own thing. And when he leaves, he's cutting himself off from his father's house and from the town that he lives in. That would have been what people understood. He is leaving and he's not coming back. He's saying to us, both his nuclear, his, his extended family and his community, I'm not interested in being a part of being in relationship with y'all any longer. Now, the older son had a role to play and he doesn't play it. His job was to mediate. So in this culture, if there's a disagreement between two people, the two people don't uh, handle it themselves because one of them, it will require one of them um, to lose face. You don't do that. 
Honor and shame culture honors the highest value. Shame is the biggest thing you're trying to steer away from. So you need a mediator, somebody to draw these two people back together. And that would have been the role of the older son. And he should have done that, and he doesn't. And then he should have been the one to say to his younger brother, don't leave. He should have been begging him, pleading him, encouraging him, don't go, stay here. He doesn't do any of that. He lets his younger brother go, which shows his heart for his father, and it shows his heart for his brother. So this younger son, dad, I wish you were dead. Give me my stuff. I'm cutting myself off from relationship with you, with our extended family, and with this community. He goes into Gentile country, and he wastes his money. We don't know how. The older brother says it's um, on prostitutes. He's not necessarily a reliable witness. But whatever he does, wild living is what it says. He wastes all of his money, and then a famine hits. We don't get famine. Thankfully, we don't get famine. And we're never going to get famine, thankfully. But if you can imagine a scenario, no Kroger, no Publix, no Costco, your little garden in the back is not producing anything. Like, you've got no food, your neighbors have no food, and you don't have any way of getting food. There is no more desperate situation than a famine. He's in this foreign country, and there's a famine, and he's going, he doesn't have any money, and he can't go home. There's this ceremony K-E-Z-E-Z-A-H. I'm going to say Kazaza, because I don't know what it's supposed to sound like. So, as a Jewish man, if I took my stuff and I left, and I lost it among the Gentiles, and I wanted to come home, it was brutal. The whole town, when I entered, like when I crossed the city limits, would come out to me, and they would see very quickly, I didn't make anything, I lost everything. They bring me into the center of the town. They get this huge clay pot and they break it in front of me. And they would say, you are cut off. And they wouldn't have anything to do with me anymore. You couldn't, like, you can't go home again. And so this boy who's in Gentile country, broke, and now in a famine, knows he can't come home unless he wants to face. It's not just his dad that he has to face. It's not just his older brother who he has to face. He's got to somehow run the gauntlet of this whole town. All of these people are going to taunt him endlessly and mercilessly. It's hard for us to get a picture, especially in a city as big as Mary. Like, what does that even look like for the whole town? Some of you are from small towns. You might be able to picture what that's like going back ashamed and the whole town knowing about it. And then there being this public castigating of you, this public declaration, you're you're cut off. And we don't want anything to do with you. So that's what he's got in his mind. So he starts working for a Gentile pig farmer. Now, that's the worst job a Jewish man can have. So you you think, what's my worst job ever? And that's him. Mine actually had to do with pigs also. I worked at Honey Baked Ham for two weeks. (laughs) It was only for two weeks. Not because I quit, because that's that's how long we were supposed to work. But I had to wear a hairnet and rubber gloves and dealt with... I hadn't had a ham since, I'll tell you that. So, it's probably all that needs to be said about honey-baked ham. So, you think about your worst job. That's this guy. Pigs are unclean. And he's working, he's a rich, he's the son of a rich man. He's probably never worked a day in his life and he's slopping pigs. And he's so hungry, he's saying, I wish I could eat what they eat. And the reason he can't, it's not because of any conviction, it's because he physically can't digest the food that they're giving these pigs. He's got, he's got nothing. Is it famine, no money, foreign country? 
and he's thinking about going home, but he knows he's going to have to run this gauntlet if he gets home. And then if he makes it through the town, he's going to get to his father's estate, and they're not going to let him in. He's going to have to stand by the gate, and then who's going to come out? His older brother. And his older brother's going to come out and say, you're worthless, you're a loser, you squandered everything that you had, now you're coming back. It's all mine now. You wasted yours, and now you want to live off of mine. We're not letting you back in. Like, that's what is in his mind. Those are his two choices. But he realizes, if I don't do something, I'm going to die here in this pigsty. And so he concocts this plan. I don't think it's from any sense of repentance. I think it's desperation because he's hungry. He says, all right, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go home. I'm going to say to my dad, I, I get it. I'm not wor- I've sinned against you. I'm not worthy to be your son. Make me like a hired servant. It's not a slave. It's a different word. Make me like one of your craftsmen, like one of your tradesmen. That's what I want to be. I think what he's saying is, I'm going to go home, and Dad, I need you to back me. I don't have any skills, and I'm broke. So I want you to back me so I can learn a trade. So back me with the master electrician, master carpenter, master plumber. You back me so one of those guys will bring me under his wing as an apprentice. Then I can actually earn some money, save some money, and maybe I can pay you back. I think that's what he's thinking. He's not asking for a relationship with his father. In his mind, the issue is all about the money. He thinks he's lost money. He doesn't realize he's lost relationship. And so he thinks the way around that is I just need to earn some money. So I'm going to go home and, Dad, I need you to back me with, some, with the local guild so one of those guys will pull me in. And so he starts going back. Imagine, who knows how, end of his rope. Who knows when the last time he ate anything good? Who knows when the last time he had a bath? Who knows what he was in rags? And he's coming up to the edge of the village, and he knows what's going to happen. First, it's the little kids that come out, and they're going to see him, and then they're going to start talking, and then the word's going to spread through the village that this son of a rich man, who three months ago or four months ago or six months ago, with this fire sale, sold everything he had, humiliated his father, walked away from his father, and left the village, is now coming back literally with nothing. So the whole way home, however long it takes, two weeks, three weeks, whatever it takes for him to walk home, that's what he's thinking is going to happen. And that's what he's thinking he's going to have to endure. And what Jesus says is his father sees him from a long way off and has compassion for him. And his father knows what's about to happen. He knows the gauntlet he's going to have to run. And what the father does is he runs to him instead. Old men don't run. And rich old men don't run. And rich old men who've been publicly humiliated by their children don't run to them. And the father does that. He runs to his son before anybody has a chance to do anything. He's there. Hugs him. Kisses him. The son starts his speech, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And then he realizes the rest of it doesn't even make sense. He doesn't finish. He doesn't do the whole thing about make me a tradesman, make me like one of your hired workers. What he was expecting was to run the gauntlet and then go sit out by the gate, deal with his older brother, and maybe at some point he'd get to see his dad. Everything his father does is countercultural. It's counterintuitive. He's, he doesn't have anything to say. His speech doesn't make any sense because his father's not acting along conventional lines. And so I think he says his first sentence because he gets it and he means it and he just shuts up. And I think that's when he repents, when he stops talking. 
And then his father jumps in and fully restores him. Give him the best robe, which would have been a robe that the father had worn. Give him a signet ring that gives him authority in the house. Put shoes on his feet because only servants go barefooted. Sons wear shoes. We're going to have a huge feast tonight. The fattened calf, this calf that we've been saving for a special occasion. This is it. And so that night they have a huge banquet with everybody from the village comes so everybody can see he's back. And the way I'm treating him is the way y'all are going to treat him. For some of you, this is a tangent. For some of you, you get, I'm forgiven. You know that. What you don't get is the idea of a public restoration where God says, the way I see you is the way we see you. And the way I treat you is the way we treat you. Some of us are on the other side. And we're the ones who look down our nose at people who've, whatever the, the sin is, adultery or alcoholism or whatever the sin is that we think, tisk, tisk, tisk. Well, it's okay for you to be in church, but you can't be fully restored. What this parable says is, when he restores, he restores fully and everybody follows along. The father sets the, the pace. The father sets the tempo. And the expectation is everybody else in the village is going to treat the boy as a fully restored son, not as a failure any longer. For some of you, you need to hear that. You know God has forgiven you. You need to recognize he wants you to be fully restored in the body of Christ. And you don't need to walk around with your head hanging down any longer. You don't need to walk a half step. Behind everybody else. You don't have to turn down every opportunity to step up and lead because of something from three or four or ten years ago. God wants to restore you fully. You don't have to come back and say, well, let me work it off. Let me, let me get a job. Let me earn some money. And then maybe at some point, that's not how it works. All you have to do is receive What he wants to give you. Three things that you can see from these parables. God is a pursuing God. He takes initiative and he goes after people who are lost, no matter why they're lost. Sheep wander, coins are inanimate. They're like, they're the unknowing. They just don't know what they don't know. The younger son is a rebel, selfish, punk, all of those things. It doesn't matter. God pursues each one of them. God pursues people who are far off. For whatever reason, they're far off. Sometimes we're okay with people who don't know. We're not okay with people who know and rebel. He doesn't make that distinction. He pursues the sheep, he looks for the coin, and he pursues this son with equal passion, with equal persistence. And we need to know he's still doing that today. Whoever was in your social or religious outcast category, whoever the people who are outside of the scope of God's grace, you've got to recognize there's nobody outside the scope of his grace. He pursues all who are far away from him, and he pursues them relentlessly. God bears the, the weight. God pays the price for reconciliation. The shepherd goes and looks for the sheep, and when he finds the sheep, he puts the sheep on his back, on his shoulders, and he carries the sheep home. You know how much a sheep weighs? 
200 pounds. Who weighs 200 pounds in here? Somebody raise your hand. Stand up. Thatcher weighs 200 pounds, fit and trim. Who wants to put that guy on your shoulders and carry him up Kennesaw Mountain? Who? That's what a shepherd does. Finds a sheep, puts him on his shoulders, grabs his feet with one hand so he has one hand free. And it's rugged terrain. He bears the the cost. He pays the price for reconciling us. The father in the prodigal son does the same thing. He bears the humiliation that should rightfully fall on the son. The son is the one who should be humiliated. He's the one that screwed up. It's 100% his responsibility. He can't blame anybody else. He got what he wanted and he blew it. All on him. And the father chooses out of love to bear the humiliation that the son should have to face. He, he, he pays the price for reconciliation. And he does the same thing with us. Jesus' life, death, and resurrection pays the price for us to be reconciled to God. In him, we're being reconciled to the father. We don't need to come up with our own plan for how to get back into the family. Repentance. In this, in Luke 15, what repentance looks like is accepting what God has done for you. How does a sheep getting rescued, how is that a picture of repentance? But according to that parable, it is. That's the connection Jesus makes. A sheep being rescued, so there is rejoicing with one sinner who needs to repent. How do those things fit together? The sheep didn't do anything. Exactly. The sheep didn't do anything. The sheep accepted being found. The lost son, when he, he doesn't do anything. He never even gets to finish his speech. All he does is stop talking and let the father put a robe and a ring and shoes on him. He knows he's not worthy, but he accepts what the father has done for him. That's what repentance looks like in Luke 15. If you would say this morning that you're far from God, what does repentance look like? Acknowledge the fact that you're far from him. Use the word lost. I acknowledge I'm lost. And God, I acknowledge that I can be found by you. And that the work that you've done through your sons, life, death, and resurrection, that pays the price for me to be reconciled to you. It all could end there. Three parables that build on each other. You go from one out of a hundred to one out of ten to one out of two. We go from a sheep to a coin to a son. The emotional content gets... Stronger with each one. Easier to draw the parallels. It seems like it could end there. But it doesn't. Here's the back half of the last parable. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of his servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in, so his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who squandered your prosperity, your property excuse me, with prostitutes come home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, You're always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So remember, Jesus is addressing the Pharisees. And now he's saying to them, it's not one out of two sons who are lost. It's two out of two. Both sons are estranged from their father. One, it's, it's obvious. Because he said, give me my stuff and I'm out of here. And he blew it. And he comes back smelly and penniless. 
The other son, he's just as alienated from his father, but you can't tell because he does all the right things. He follows all the rules. So this son comes back from the fields. He hadn't been working. He's probably been supervising. He comes back, and he smells this calf. That's an unusual smell. You don't eat meat often. He smells, and he hears this celebration. And remember, everything is his now because the father's divided it. So everything that's left is his possession. The father still can use it, but it's his. And so he's going, what, what, what are y'all doing? Who threw a party without asking me? It's, it's my money. Who's doing this? Servant goes out and says, it's your dad. He did it. Why? Because your brother's back. Your brother's home. Safe and sound. It's obvious by the party the father's welcomed him back in to the home. He didn't have to go through the zazaza thing at the town. He's not sitting by the gate getting worked over. He's been brought all the way back into the family. And the older brother is ticked. And I don't think this is a private conversation out in the field somewhere. I think everybody can hear it. And he's angry and he's not going in. Custom. Male relatives all go in and greet the guests at a feast. Custom. If you've got, if it's a big banquet, eldest son would participate in serving. The idea being, you guests are so esteemed in our eyes that we have our son serving you. So by not going in, he is humiliating his father. And so everybody in there is going, what's he going to do? How's the dad going to respond? What he should do is leave him out there and then go take care of him when everybody leaves. That's what he should do. But that's not what he does. He, again, takes the initiative, goes outside. We don't get it. Humiliating for him to have to leave his own party because his son won't come in. Go out to him, and he says, he pleads with him. Think about that. He's pleading with his grown son. Come in. And his son's angry, which again shows his heart. Can't believe you're doing this. It's not right. It's not fair. I've been slaving for you. How about that word? I've been slaving for you for years, and you've never given me anything. Same attitude as the younger brother. The younger brother says, I don't want to be a son. I just want my stuff. Older brother says the same thing. I'm not a son. I'm a servant, and you've never given me anything. I just want stuff. I don't want a relationship with you. And the father uses a very tender word for son. It's a different word. It's very tender when he comes back to him. And he says, it's all yours. It's all always been yours. I just need you to come in and participate. What Jesus is saying to the Pharisees is, come on. You're just like them. Just like the younger brother needs grace, so does the older brother. Just like the younger brother is alienated from the father, so is the older brother. Pharisees. You need to say yes to this. You need grace as well. And I'm inviting you into this ministry of seeking and saving people who are far away. We don't know how it ends. It just kind of hangs there. We don't know what the older brother does. We know what the Pharisees do, most of them, is they reject the invitation and they kill Jesus, is what most of them do. But it's out there for all of us who are older brothers. And I would imagine most of us, if we were honest, would say we're more older brother than younger brother. In the room. And the invitation is there for all of us. Are you willing to participate with me in seeking and saving people who are far away? Are you willing to go after nobody's outside the scope? Pedophiles, they're not too far away. Alcoholics are not too far away. Mentally unstable, they're not too far away. Homeless are not too far away. Whatever it is in your mind, greedy, selfish, arrogant, they're not too far away. 
as he's going after all of them and he invites us to participate with him in that. Two questions as we close. One, are you estranged this morning? You say you're far away from God. You may have wandered. You may just not even know what you don't know. You may have rebelled or may be in the process of that. This morning, my encouragement to you is just acknowledge your lostness and allow God to find you. That's all you have to do. I get it. I'm lost. I'm wandering. I'm drifting aimlessly. I don't even know what I don't know. I'm actively running. I'm actively rejecting relationship with you. But I acknowledge I'm lost. And then watch him come and find you. If you would say, yeah, I'm in. I've been found. Will you say yes to this invitation to participate with him in seeking and saving things, people who are far away? Michael talked last week about the fact that we've all, God is calling all of us. He's calling us to Jerusalem, or that's your local area, or Judea, or he's calling you to Samaria, the hard places, or he's calling you to the ends of the earth. We see the missionary heart of God in this chapter, and he's inviting us to be a part of that. We have an opportunity to respond. Let's pray. God, I want to pray first if there are any in here today who would say, I've, I'm estranged. I'm not asking if you've ever said yes. I'm not asking if you've ever been baptized, if you've ever prayed a sinner's prayer. I'm saying right now, relationally, do you feel close or do you feel far? And if you feel estranged this morning, all I want you to do in your heart is acknowledge it. God, I, I, I confess. I've drifted from you. God, I confess I'm running away from you as fast as my legs will carry me. Maybe the older brothers. God, I confess that on the outside, I'm dotting every I and crossing every T. But inside, I'm angry. I've done all of these things for you. I give. I show up. I serve, and you're not, you have, you've never given me anything back. That may be you this morning. It's an internal rebellion. You're hitting your marks, but inwardly you're boiling. If that's you, would just acknowledge this morning, God, I'm lost. I'm far away. Come find me. That's all you got to pray. Come find me. And God, I, I can't adequately communicate your zeal and your passion for the men and women in this room. And so I pray that you would speak to them in a way that they would understand. For any who feel far away, God, I pray that you, during the next two minutes, would speak to them in a way that would pierce and penetrate into the very core of who they are. If it's through the the clip that we saw earlier or a song or something from the scripture, I don't know, I just pray that you would penetrate their hearts with this truth, this revelation, this incredible love that you have for them. Some of you may be saying, I got a plan and this is it. This is how I'm going to clean myself up. 
drop it. Acknowledge your lostness. Ask him to find you. Others of you this morning, the conviction point. Who's outside the scope of God's grace? If you saw Jesus eating with fill in the blank, you'd be offended and shocked. It may be a specific person. It may be a group. Could you this morning say, God, give me compassion for them. I want to join with you in seeking and saving people who are far away. But I confess there are certain people, honestly, I just assume they burn. But you don't just assume that about anybody. I don't want to look down my nose at anyone. I want to be self-righteous. I don't want to be judgmental. You're pursuing everyone that you've created. And you never give up. So would you empower me to participate with you in that? God, my prayer for us individually and as a body, that we would be known as a compassionate people. People who say there's nobody who's too far away. There's no one who's too far gone. There's no one who's too dirty or smelly or wicked. And God, whatever role we play in seeing people who are far away reconciled, we say yes. We say yes to that. God, we want to see boys and girls and men and women in our city and in our county turning to you in numbers. We don't care if they ever come to church here. We just want them in your family. So whatever we can do to help, we say yes. In Jesus' name, amen.